Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I have the pleasure of being here with Mike Del Balso. Mike is the product manager for machine learning platforms at Uber. Yep. Mike, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, it's awesome to have you, and I especially love it when folks tell me that they actually listen to the show before I'm about <laughs> to interview them. Yeah, that makes I listen it, to uh, almost every episode at the gym. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> nice. Do you like... Uh, do you put it on like 1.5x? Or I actually like, do. Uh, I have uh, <laughs> I have some thing where it, other people can't stand it, like when I play podcasts for my friends, but I, it's got some setting to skip spaces and to just go 1.5x, so it just sounds really weird, but I got you so used to it, it doesn't bother me. That's funny. I listen to a ton of audiobooks and podcasts, and I tend to listen to it 1.5x, and... Um, you know, it's to the point where, like, if I hear the person slow down, they sound all yeah, weird. So yeah. I, do I sound, like, really weird and slow talking right now? <laughs> it's not the voice I was expecting. But, uh, yeah, there's actually, like, little jingles in front of different uh, podcasts that when I listen to it at 1x, uh-huh. it just sounds weird, like, because it's all down-pitched or whatever. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, so I guess this this podcast has that too, right? There's a little jingle. The yeah, the, uh, I'm not even going to try to reproduce <laughs> Don't do it. it. <laughs> it's just that, that robot, it's called Robot Race. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know the routine, right? How'd you get started in machine learning and AI? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, so I'm a trained electrical engineer. And, Go double uh, E. Right on. And uh, so we're in Toronto right now, and I went to University of Toronto, and when I graduated, I uh, got hired as an associate product manager at Google. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> the associate product management program is uh, the way that they hire product managers directly out of school. Okay. And it's a rotational program. So they put you on one team for about a year and then you switch and they put you on another team for a year and then you can switch again if you okay. want. And so my first role was on maps and I worked on maps data kind of stuff. And then my second role was on uh, Google's ads auction team. And I was uh, the product manager for uh, some of the teams that generate a lot of the machine learning predictions for uh, the ads auction. Okay. And so the kinds of predictions you'd want to make are, you know, how relevant is this ad to the query that somebody is uh, searching for? Or how likely do we think someone is to click this ad? So just a tangential little product at Google. <laughs> it was super important. It was really interesting because it was super important and we would make changes that would have gigantic financial impacts. And, uh, it, but it, you know, it's a lot of really big numbers and dollars that you work with and it could be hundreds of millions of dollar change you'd make. But as at the same time, uh, you work with really small numbers where you, are working on a project that you think is going to improve something or some other metric by 0.01% and you'll be happy that you squeezed wow. out another 0.1%, but really it translates to a lot of money. So, wow. uh, yeah, those like really interesting, uh, place to work. And, uh, there's some pretty unique things about working on that team. Uh, one, those machine learning models that we ran were, uh, I, I think had some of the strictest requirements for stability in the industry. So, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't want any downtime in the ad system. So we had a whole bunch of infrastructure to support that. Also okay. super large scale, uh, super real time. We have to score a whole bunch of ads uh, at query time and return all these scores and run a whole crazy auction really quickly. And, uh, 
and it's just a complex problem to try to predict if you're going to click on an ad. And uh, so we tried to do a really good job of it, but uh, but it's always like you can always do more. So that I learned a lot about machine learning on those teams, mm-hmm. and um, probably set you up to learn a ton about the importance of platforms for machine learning. Platforms, yeah, they ha- we had our own infrastructure to support us in the machine learning space uh, to help us train models and evaluate them in real time and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think most importantly though, uh, is I learned a lot about best practices of machine learning. Mm-hmm. And I learned that at a time when machine learning was still pretty new for a lot of, a lot of people. And mm-hmm. it, and I think even today we're at a point where best practices for machine learning aren't as, uh, widely, established as best practices for like regular software development like like checking your code and use git and right. run tests before you submit stuff and etc and uh that kind of stuff is just not as well established for machine learning so yeah that's part of the kind of th- those best practices are kind of what i learned on those teams okay and so i've been there for a while and then i joined about two years ago i joined uber mm-hmm. uh, as uh, the product manager for what was pretty much the only machine learning team at the time. And, and uh, we began building uh, a machine learning platform, which today is known as Michelangelo. And we recently uh, uh, wrote a blog post and published it uh, to explain what Michelangelo is all mm-hmm. about. And uh, basically, that's a system to allow internal people within Uber to build machine learning systems and deploy them and monitor them and maintain them at scale mm-hmm. uh, within Uber. And so uh, our customers are teams like the team who's trying to predict uh, ETAs, like how long it will take a car to get to you, mm-hmm. or uh, the Uber Eats team. That's... Can you tell them I think they need to work on that a little bit more? <laughs> I, I'm working on it, man. And uh, we've got a whole roadmap to improve this stuff. But uh, I mean, it's, I mean, that really touches on a real kind of product implications of using machine learning, which mm-hmm. is like, how do you, how do you communicate and, and design for uncertainty? Because, yeah, you know, yeah. machine learning, you're inherently, you're making a prediction. And right. often a lot of use cases, uh, a system will ask for, give me your best prediction, like your one, give me one number back. Right. But often a system will kind of know like a distribution. Like I think it's, going to be this in this range yeah and so uh we try to when we can provide like a range of you know our confidence intervals for what how long we think it'll take uh, some process to happen and i think we do that well in uber eats but uh you know it's the the product requires a single number in etas and it's hard to right right it's funny how much of this ends up being just kind of ux ui right like if it said you know four to eight minutes it wouldn't be I think a lot more palatable than four and then eight the next time you look at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's uh it's also the kind of thing where you, we have to work with, with uh, designers a lot to, to explain to them the uncertainty that comes mm. with these machine learning systems and help mm-hmm. them understand like w- what level of confidence we actually have with these numbers so that right. they can understand what the user, user experience will be from, uh, like like once they get these values, once they get the predictions back, but uh, and not ETAs are inherently a really challenging yeah. thing. Like there will be construction Anything on the street, happen. and then your whole right. your model has to adapt really quickly, and it's t- it's a tough engineering problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, if only, uh, if only users thought about how tough the engineering problems were. They know <laughs> I, when I they were waiting for their. Uber. I think they shouldn't <laughs> worry about it, and we should just uh, make it a good experience, and they don't have to <laughs> even consider anything about implementation. Should be should be magical, and uh, that's kind of like what we're trying to do at Uber is make transportation as reliable as running water. So yeah. you don't have to worry about anything. You just open up the app and call call a ride, and the ride comes to you. Right. Right. I want to talk about Michelangelo. I also want to talk about the presentation you did here because uh, yeah. you sp- spoke here at the Georgian Partners Conference. Um, do you talk about Michelangelo in your presentation? Like, will we I, get to I it? I think I intended to mention it, plug it, but I don't think I actually got to it in the presentation. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I'm happy to chat about what that's about uh, well, or we'll, go into the we'll presentation. We'll put that on the, on, the, on the stack. Also, Horovod, you yep. guys just announced Horovod, and that came up in our last, uh, the Twimble Online Meetup. Someone mentioned oh, yeah? that uh, they saw the news, uh, and we, we discussed uh, that for a little bit. So I'd love to hear kind of you riff on, on that for a bit. But let's start with kind of the presentation, and we'll, yep. we'll see where that takes us. Yeah, okay. So uh, you know, I, I gave a 20, 30-minute talk at the at this conference today and or summit and um you know what i tried to get across the main idea that i tried to get across in this talk is that to actually get enterprise value out of using machine learning systems uh of building of applying machine learning in your company there's a lot more to do and a lot more to get right than just choosing the right algorithm and Mm. A lot of people focus on what's the right algorithm to use. When you you see most of the news we see about machine learning is mm-hmm. you know, so, so-and-so came up with a, an advancement in AI that lets us beat this other thing and new accuracy metric and stuff right. like that. And uh, that's great. And it's totally like a research frontier that's super valuable to have. And... Uh, but what practically what I deal with and a lot of like the basic machine learning problems that we deal with day to day in most use cases in a company are issues that can be adequately handled with a very few, very few algorithms. You know, mm-hmm. we can apply like gradient boosted decision trees or random forest to a large number of classification <laughs> problems and receive, you know, uh, acceptable results. And so... I forget the stat, but some astounding number of Kaggle competitions are basically just ensembles just an of those. Just ensembles of like those, like a right. lot of different ones. Different <laughs> it's like an ensemble of ensembles. Right. And uh, yeah, and so if you're trying to like get, extract value practically in your company and make systems that really use this stuff, the bottlenecks usually are not there in like which algorithm you're choosing. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're practically, if you're like building self-driving cars and stuff, where you're really pushing the limits of mm-hmm. what AI can do today, then you're dealing with that a lot more. Um, but, you know, we deal with a lot more challenges related to infrastructure uh, and data and uh, things like that that are closer to typical engineering problems mm-hmm. um, that people usually have to put in a, a little bit more effort to think about how to do that correctly in the m- machine learning paradigm. Mm-hmm. So... So in my talk, I was talking about a few different uh, areas in which um, there are kind of like pitfalls where people typically don't, uh, you know, there could be things that if you don't have experience, you don't, you don't uh, think about this ahead of time and you're not planning on dedicating 
uh, time to solving these problems, mm -hmm. uh, or it could just be like tricky things to get right, even if you know what you're doing. And so, um, you know, one area is technically just infrastructure, solving the infrastructure that goes around your machine learning system. Mm -hmm. So if you're in grad school and you're learning machine learning, you're a data scientist, statistician, <laughs> you, you get really good at training a a Python model or a R model. Mm -hmm. Your output, your deliverable from that often is like a scikit-learn Python object or mm -hmm. maybe something you can export to like a PMML format. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's just one part of the story. Like even if you have a great model, there's a lot more in a lot more infrastructure around your machine learning system that you need to integrate well integrate with well. For example, you need a logging system that is aware of the machine learning use case that can store historical data in a way that's compatible with what your machine learning system wants to do with that data in the future mm -hmm. when it's training a model on it. Or you need a monitoring system to be able to uh, accurately tr um, monitor and evaluate your model's accuracy over time so mm -hmm. you can determine if your model that you're using in production becomes stale and you need to either retrain it or if you have some other system that's automatically retraining things, you need a whole bunch of infrastructure to manage that, automatically train, evaluate, deploy, yeah. a lot of that stuff. And so, um, so, so my point there is that there's a large engineering investment to go alongside the basic work on the algorithms <laughs> that a lot of people overlook. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, when people think like machine learning is magic, it's really not magic. You still got to put a lot of work into it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one area is... Does that lead you to, like, is there a, for a, a you know, a mature company uh, or a company who's doing uh, machine learning at scale, is there like a, a magic ratio of data scientists to engineers? That's a good question. Well, uh, you know, I'm building Michelangelo, which is, mm -hmm. a, it's, we have almost exclusively engineers building that. Okay. And... Uh, our our customers are a mix of data scientists and engineers. So mm -hmm. the teams that are using our system to actually build these models and run them in production, it's usually like half and half engineers and data scientists. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a blurry line between engineer and data scientists sometimes. And so uh, sure. there's often a lot of engineers who just you know, know enough about machine learning that they don't need to consult with data scientists and they can understand enough about these models to be confident mm -hmm. about them. And uh, it, it doesn't frequently, it, I don't see it go, going the other way too much. There's not often like a data scientist who's running like a production system. Right. But uh, I mean, that can happen. That wouldn't surprise me if I mm -hmm. saw that. And, so, and the uh, trend seems to be that they'll be paired. So you'll have data scientists working with yeah. kind of this new breed of engineer called a machine learning engineer that has kind of that base level understanding of models. Yeah. Um, are you... Yeah, so what we have at uh, at Uber is kind of like the nucleus of a team is mm -hmm. uh, an, an engineer, a team of engineers, mm -hmm. um, usually one product manager and a couple of data scientists. Okay. And, you know, those... The, you know, being an engineer is not just one skill set. And so there are engineers who are right. very data focused engineers or there's UI engineers and the whole spectrum of it. And so, uh, usually the folks that partner most closely with data scientists are the more, uh, data minded engineers. Okay. But they, they're not necessarily folks with machine learning, uh, specialties. And even on my team, on the Michelangelo team, like most of the work that you end up doing to, run a production machine learning system is data pipeline work, workflow right. stuff. And so we have 
I would say probably even most of our engineers are just like data engineers, uh, infrastructure engineers, systems engineers, mm -hmm. uh, folks that have picked up a lot of important machine learning concepts, but uh, do not have like PhDs in machine learning or right. something like that. And so the idea behind Michelangelo is that, um, you know, you can invest in building this platform and then uh, the data scientist can focus on the machine learning and not have to think about the logging and the monitoring and all of these, you know, the, the life cycle of deploying and managing a model. In yeah, production. and yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, about two years ago when we started Michelangelo, there were a lot of teams who either were trying to put my, uh, machine learning systems into production and building mm -hmm. their own production stack for it. Yeah. And different teams were doing the similar thing, but there were all these bespoke solutions right. that uh, were not, you know, if you're, if you're building something for a specific use case, it's unlikely to be um, uh, supported with a proper engineering investment and it's unlikely to generalize well when you want to expand your use case and mm -hmm. somewhat brittle and stuff like that. Uh, so there was a clear... A, a clear uh, need for a platform to help these teams put something into production and manage something in production. Mm -hmm. But you know, our goal is to support everything from the exploration side of the of the uh, data science workflow all the way to production, managing something, maintaining something in production, and the whole operational side of it. Uh, I would say that. We our particular focus is the putting things into production. It's a much harder problem to solve uh, the the helping the team teams with like the model exploration stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, data scientists have their own tools that they like using, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's harder it's hard to do much better than Scikit-Learn and just letting a data scientist just iterate re really rapidly with right. the tools that they're used to. But when it comes time to for them to like begin using that system in production, uh, they usually need to rely on an engineering solution, and that's where our platform comes in. Okay. Uh, and so you mentioned logging, you mentioned monitoring. Are there other kind of main features of the platform? Well, I was I was suggesting that there's there's actually like all kinds of infrastructure, whether it's a machine learning platform or not, that mm -hmm. you want to have aware of the machine learning use case. And there's mm -hmm. also uh, types of infrastructure that you would, that is machine learning specific that you might need to build. So mm -hmm. there's a thing that we built, which is a feature store. And so that mm -hmm. allows teams to share and discover features. Uh, so if you are building the model that predicts how long a restaurant's going to take to prepare a meal for Uber Eats, mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, the model that I'm building would, would be able to benefit from some of the features that you're using in your model. Mm -hmm. And so it's a way for us to share features so I don't have to duplicate all the data pipelines to create those features. And is that, does something like that exist as like a kind of a metadata catalog that is, um, you know, mirrors a data store like a HDFS yeah. or something like that? Yeah, so for us practically uh, we have you can do a few things, but basically we manage uh, metadata metadata layer to understand where these features are stored, mm -hmm. and it is all in like Hive HDFS, and okay. other people can contribute to it, or we have this other way where we manage some core set of features, and uh, and yeah, we're still figuring out like how we can make that most usable to other teams and right. and really nail the the sharing of this data use case right. because there's. 
<laughs> it's it's I mean like it's super tricky because if you're building a production system, you are going to be hesitant to rely on a data set that you don't own, right. and you don't know if that person is going to change that how right. that's calculated the next day and it messes right. up your system. So we're trying to like figure out what the right contracts are to guarantee certain data stability and quality and stuff like that. Like how far along are you on we, we finding what it even means to have a contract? Like it's it's hard enough for services which have a, a fairly um, you know small surface area, yeah. right? Of, of the uh, the API, but the it strikes me that data has a much more kind of expansive surface area around what you need to try to define a contract. Yeah, I like, I do don't you, I I haven't spent enough time on this area to to have really figured out where, where we actually want it to be. Mm-hmm. So I can't even say if we're 20% there or 50% there, you know, like, cause I really don't know how much yeah, more we want yeah. to do in this space. Uh, so that's, that's tricky. I think it's an area that we probably want to prioritize more. Yeah. And like another thing that comes along with that is, you know, that's HDFS hive. That's all offline stuff. That's ready for batch processing. Right. But, uh, there's a whole other, uh, side to this where if you're running a online prediction model, you want these features to be generated in real time. And so you might have some real-time stream processing stuff mm-hmm. that will calculate those same features, and you want them to be calculated in the same way as mm-hmm. you calculated your offline batch data mm-hmm. that you trained your model on, but you're calculating these features in real-time and then making them available to your model so your model can score, Right. you know, and this could be like understanding how many, a good example is how many meals has this restaurant how many orders has this restaurant gotten in the past 30 minutes and that right. might be like a so you a need signal, to window like and figure out how yeah. you're going to accumulate and it's like you you've got your this repository that says what your features are and then you've got your you know your kind of your meta meta that's like how you derive the features from the underlying stream of data yeah um it's it's a it's and so you can imagine there's a large activation energy to set up a system like that. And so that's oh, yeah. part of the value of having a platform that builds all this infrastructure and plug, plugs it all together nicely. So you just need to provide a configuration and say, hey, right. use this data and give me this real-time feature. Right. Uh, and that, you know, we found that that kind of infrastructure has really lowered the activation energy. So mm-hmm. we've allowed like those teams who are building these bespoke solutions, we built a good system for them and they've kind of uh, pivoted onto our system and begun using our system. But also there's teams that before didn't have the resources to even take on a machine learning project, but they've known that they want to have some kind of predictive mm-hmm. solution in their product. And uh, and the lower activation energy to get started has kind of helped them unlock that. And mm-hmm. they've been, been able to fund a product because the, mm. or such a project because the cost has come down so much. Nice, nice. Now, so we've talked primarily around what I kind of roughly think of as engineering facing yeah. features and in infrastructure, but there's a whole set of you know, operationalizing uh, features. Uh, you may remember me getting into part of this conversation in an interview with Jennifer, Jennifer Prinke, uh, mm-hmm. who was at Walmart Labs at the yep. time not too long ago, and kind of the direction that they were heading, and I could see Michelangelo going in this direction if it's not already is, you know, you've got a model in production, like are you tracking kind of uh, either statistical drift of the inputs or, you know, model accuracy, you know, decreasing over time uh, and then like automatically triggering or at least like setting a ticket or something like that to right. reevaluate the model. 
Yeah, so, um, so you know, the kind of the, the full like service level impact of these models. Do you get into that at all? So this is, uh, we do get kind of into it. And this is an area that we're really trying to focus on over the next couple of months okay. is uh, build out a lot of, there's a lot of things you'd want to do to operationalize and maintain such a model. So right. things like uh, tracking the data quality both in and out of your model. Mm -hmm. So you might want to do things like track feature distributions uh, over time in real time. So mm -hmm. all the data that's coming into your model, does it look different in this five minutes than it looked in, in right. the past? And you might compare that to the distribution of data that you saw an hour ago, but also like the historical distribution of like the past two years of data like that. And right. has that changed? Um, I mean, just sorry to interrupt, but yeah, go ahead. Uh, when we were talking about, uh, you know, data and contracts around data and models, like one of my thoughts was, you know, is part of that contract like a statistical distribution of the data at a point in time so that you can refer back to, yeah. you know, what you thought that data looked like when you built the model? Right. So you can. So that's not something that we would necessarily want the customer to explicitly provide, but it yeah. would be something that we may be able to um, extract from the training data. Mm. So we might be able to say like, look, this is the distribution of the data we saw at training time. Right. Let's kind of save a snapshot of the sum summer, summary statistics and, mm -hmm. then, and then compare our normal, uh, like the data we see in real time to the, yeah. those statistics. And so sometimes like, you know, your training data, you might rebalance classes and reweight things and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so there's some complication to uh, to keep, take that stuff into account. And so this is some of the challenges that we're working through right now. Okay. But then there's also the other side of like doing the same data quality checks on the output of your model, like the predictions and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing the same uh, statistics tracking stuff. And you would also want to uh, have alerting happen on that kind of thing. And that's uh, all part of this like larger uh, infrastructure integration story because you, okay. your company should have a way to, you know, like set up alerts for production systems. And right. so you just want to integrate with the basic stuff that you have. Right. Cool. So we didn't get very far into your presentation. So, yeah, yeah. No, no, we were, so we were, so I, I was talking a lot about like the infrastructure side, okay. which is the summary is you got to do a lot of engineering okay. work before you get into, uh, to, to put one of these models into production properly. Uh, there's also um, an, another part of it, which is, you know, building tools to help the data scientists do their job properly, both mm -hmm. correctly and uh, productively. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there's many parts of the data science workflow. And, um, you know, if you leave data scientists, if you don't pr support them with the proper tools, then they may be building systems in a non-reproducible way. So there's not mm -hmm. a way to like recreate the model if you need to retrain it. There, mm -hmm. It may not be all versioned and source and like checked in and source controlled and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And, uh, and, and you may not even have standardized uh, ways to evaluate these models. So you, you, you may just waste a lot of cycles comparing uh, data scientist A's evaluations to data scientist B's evaluations because mm. they're it's not a common set of metrics that everybody's agreed mm. on ahead of time. So there's some work to provide some infrastructure for the for them as well. And mm -hmm. so the future store is one example. It gives okay. a kind of like common source of truth. But beyond the, the technical stuff, there's a lot of organizational uh considerations when you're trying to make the most out of machine learning in your company. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the one thing that's important to understand is that 
not everyone's an expert at machine learning and uh, people come with different levels of uh, abilities and pre and background knowledge of machine learning. So that leads to a lot of times when uh, people have false conclusions about how machine learning can be applied to their problem. So some people mm. will tell me, well, I don't think machine learning can help with my problem at all. So uh, we, we don't need to like have a collaboration. And then when we look into it, we realize, oh, well, actually, the main problem you're trying to solve is pretty appropriate for a machine learning solution. Mm -hmm. Or there's folks who uh, have told me, uh, have kind of conveyed that they believe machine learning is basically magic and they think it can solve all of their problems. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing where uh, you really want to understand those expectations and adjust those expectations to be much more realistic so you don't have uh, a problem down the line mm -hmm. of completely missed expectations. But then there's also people who who uh, are almost like overconfident about what they know about machine learning and they request specific algorithms or specific implementation. Uh -huh. And the example I gave in the talk was someone once asked me, uh, mentioned that they need uh, unsupervised re uh, online deep reinforcement <laughs> learning or something like that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Like, I don't know if that's a thing, but we should understand what your problem is. So, so like the way to handle most of these situations is to not really focus on the machine learning part of it, but right. to really just like talk to these people and understand what the business problem they're trying to solve is mm -hmm. and not involve machine learning vocabulary. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm the product manager of our team. So part of my role is to understand the business problem and find a way to translate it into a machine learning problem something that we would be able to solve and understand mm -hmm. also something that you'd be able to solve or something that you'd be able to support with B both the... both so we okay. have a, we also have a, an applied machine learning team that okay. uh we that we is kind of like a, a tiger a, team that supports the different engineering groups it's, or it's yeah it's kind of like a set of machine learning specific data scientists that uh, uh these folks may be able to like put on loan to a team to help okay. them solve a machine learning problem if uh, they don't have the resources when it's a particularly relevant and important machine learning problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so like I help kind of coordinate these okay. these types of problems. And uh, yeah, so we figure out like if it's a relevant problem and how we might be able to solve it. And uh, ultimately, I'm trying to understand the, the business metrics that these people are trying to optimize for mm -hmm. and understand the mechanisms that the whole product works. So what they think actually affects those business metrics. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to translate that problem into for, for uh, our data scientists or for even for their data scientists who might need help with it, um, like a machine learning problem that where, where if a data scientist is optimizing for precision recall or all the other kind of uh, data science metrics that they would be used to that are related to machine learning, as they optimize for those, those would likely be an appropriate proxy for optimizing for these end business metrics. Mm -hmm. And so it, all, it doesn't always work out perfectly, uh, but it's a good way to like start things off. And mm -hmm. ultimately, you want to have people who understand the whole problem end to end to really like think things through. Think things through, but it's a good way to get started in that kind of area. Okay, so. So, uh, like talking to people in the right, at the right level of, of, um, like vocabulary, mm -hmm. you know, focusing on the business problems, expectations, making sure they don't think that machine learning is magic, setting that properly. Another thing that I found useful is, uh, going out of my way to find a 
an, a, a senior person in the company who really understands machine learning mm-hmm. real, or like taking the time out to educate them about machine learning. So I can always have them on my side if I really need to, if I ever need to defer to someone more senior, I know that there's someone there who uh, will, will either be sufficiently technically competent to be able to make the right call mm-hmm. or that I've spent enough time with so that they'll trust me to, to make the call when yeah. it comes to that. Yeah. So that I found that to be useful. And then another uh, thing that is also useful for figuring out how to make the most out of machine learning is realizing that you're not going to have a machine learning, you're not going to have infinite machine learning experts. Mm -hmm. And so you have to find a way to make the most out of the limited number of machine learning experts you have. And And what's the answer to that challenge? It's tricky. It's like, how do you set up your org, right? It's like, how do you, how do you distribute your machine learning folks across the different uh, teams? And there's different ways you can do it. So I mentioned that uh, we have uh, this applied group, which mm-hmm. is um, which is kind of like a solutions team in some sense, where they they're uh, a team of uh, a few data scientists who are experts at machine learning, and they kind of are out on loan to different teams that need help that don't have the machine learning uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine there's these different engineering teams and then there's one kind of like cluster of machine learning people on a separate team that mm-hmm. that loosely interact with those teams. But another model is you could just embed one machine learning person or one or two on each of those teams. Mm-hmm. And so that model is slightly more difficult to scale because you have a new team and then you need another machine learning person. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think... You know, we've experimented with different models, different uh, different models will work well for different size companies. Often it's not just a binary thing, but there could be like a hybrid where you might lean more to one side or another. And in practice, we might have things where our applied team might start off a project, but then mm-hmm. hand off a project to a data scientist on okay. that product team at some point. So like thinking those things through explicitly mm-hmm. ahead of time and being realistic about how much how many resources related to machine learning that you have, that's pretty valuable. Mm. And so that kind of covers the organizational things you want to think about when you're launching machine learning systems. And then finally, just like team focused uh, things, which are like, how do you, when you're running a machine learning project, what can you do to like organize your machine learning project to uh, be set up for success? And there's a few things that are, kind of just like questions you want to ask yourself and like rules of thumb you want to apply. So one is about like not artificially encapsulating the machine learning specific part separately from the non-machine learning specific part of your project. Like you don't want the person who's building the model, who's generating these scores to not know anything about how these scores are being used. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of, uh, like there's a lot of ways that uh, these scores can be misused and a lot mm-hmm. of like nuance and how these scores are generated. Right. And, uh, and we can... talked about the, the inverse of that, which is the designers and the app teams not really understanding the scores and the probabilistic nature of the scores. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's part mm-hmm. of like, um, that, yeah, that's part of like how you would design a project to, to, to a product rather to take, make actual, uh, relevant use of the machine learning scores that you're providing. And then there's other uh, examples of this, which are more like, you know, your scores can be used in a way that, that they, sh- they were not intended to be used. Mm-hmm. And when um, they can even be used in a way that can harm your machine learning model, if you have a certain feedback loop where, you know, if you're trying to predict churn, for example, and then someone uses these scores to 
to provide some treatment to the people who are most likely to churn, and then they solve the churn problem for the 10% most likely to churn people, mm -hmm. then those people didn't churn. And then when you go to retrain your model next month or two months from now or whenever, you'll not have those labels that those people churned. And mm -hmm. so your training data is going to be kind of messed up. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not, that's not a, like a particularly hard problem, but you just have to, if you don't think about that ahead of time, if you're not thinking this problem through end to end, and you're not aware of how these scores are being used, mm -hmm. then you may not include that in your design of the whole system. And so your whole project might be flawed from the beginning. And is a solution there to flush your, your labels when you make changes like that? There's other things you could do. One could be uh, just have a holdout set. So you mm -hmm. just don't, you never apply treatments to some X percent of the people that you're making predictions for. So okay. then you can always reserve them as like, the control, the untouched people that okay. you can train your model on in the future. Okay. Uh, or you can even like a more advanced way is find a way to include that treatment in your modeling in the future. So mm. your model is aware that maybe these people didn't turn, but it was because they got this treatment. And so it's kind of, that, that yeah. has more of a feedback loop and it's, it's right. more complicated. You need to think about it more deeply. Uh, but overall, like I'm, I'm on the team side, it's, you, you really want your folks to, who have, who really have an attitude of ownership of, of these systems to mm -hmm. be the most involved here. You want them to be kind of almost like borderline paranoid about the, the operation of these systems. Mm -hmm. Asking questions like, if the world changes, is my model going to be able to react to it? And mm -hmm. how will my model react to it? Right. Or like, if how a feature is computed by the logging people uh, or if it's how, how it's recorded changes slightly, like they use a different format to they store int now instead of a double, mm -hmm. is that going to mess up my number, uh, my predictions? Mm. And how can I prevent that to hap from happening? Mm -hmm. uh, or like, how will I notice if something's wrong? Or uh, any number of things, or even, even like on these different dimensions, like legal and cultural things, like based on how these predictions are being used, is there any bias that's inherent in this model? And will that have some impact in how the model is perceived like legally or culturally. And mm -hmm. that's always a tricky problem. And you, often not just one person can think through all of these problems and you want mm -hmm. uh, a, a uh, like a kind of like a good citizenship attitude because no one's particularly singularly responsible for these issues. Right. But right. you just want people to really think things through and really own this system. So uh, they are always feeling like they're doing the right thing here as well. Okay. So we covered, I think, the topics in your presentation. I wanted to make sure we hit on uh, Horovod before yeah, we yeah, yeah. move on. What's so, that all about? So we um, we have a lot of data at Uber, and we've been trying to get started uh, running uh, distributed TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. And we ran into a lot of issues uh, just setting up the parameter server constellation and mm -hmm. connecting everything together in the proper way. And... Uh, We've got uh, an engineer, Alex Sergeev, who's awesome. He's a genius. And he found a way to uh, kind of improve upon the uh, Baidu's, a paper that Baidu published where they uh, open source some code to do a different, to have a different way to uh, distribute the work in TensorFlow. And yeah, so basically uses, ripping out the, the guts of the distributed stuff and replacing it with open MPI. Exactly. Which is, harkens back to the great computing days. Yeah, so uh, it uses like a the ring all reduce method, and you okay. have uh, you know you have if you have n nodes, each node can, is only sending 
data to one other node and receiving from one other node. Mm. And there's no parameter servers. The only all the workers are uh, communicating with other nodes and are averaging up gradients uh, in that node itself. And so you kind of like set up this ring of um, connections between like a circle, like an, align them all in mm -hmm. a circle. And so then if you pass one message through, it, it will, and you keep iterating your your message passing, eventually um, one signal will get all the way around and be distributed to all the nodes. Hmm. It's much easier to understand visually. If you <laughs> see it. We run into that problem sometimes <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. podcast. But, uh, but um, so Alex built this awesome system that uh, is called Horovod. Horovod is a Russian dance that, uh, people link arms in a circle, and okay. so it's kind nice. of like uh, the right imagery there. And um, and so he's been applying it to a lot of our uh, distributed learning problems. And uh, he's found that it's much easier to set up a uh, distributed learning job in mm -hmm. TensorFlow. So uh, you know, there's a lot of boilerplate code that you need to have in a existing parameter server TensorFlow mm -hmm. paradigm uh, to like allow it to all be distributed. And he's figured out a way to have only four lines of code that you need to add to a TensorFlow script to distribute it. Wow. And I've heard uh, not great things about trying to distribute out-of-the-box TensorFlow. It's it's pretty challenging. I don't know uh, exactly. I I don't know exactly what Google does internally, uh, but I th I think they're probably working on an improvement well, to it. So from what I've heard, they're trying to, or at least, you know, someone is thinking that at some point, you know, they've got this Kubernetes thing that's yeah. kind of good at distributed compute. They've got this TensorFlow thing. Hey, you know, somehow we can kind of get the chocolate and the peanut butter together. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, know. yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's a whole team working on that yeah, at Google. And yeah. so uh, this was just like, Alex on our team needed to solve a problem for himself immediately. And so he built this system huh. and it's really easy. You, if you check out the blog post we have, uh, just search Horovod uh, and- uh, Not just blog post, it's open source. It's and it's GitHub, open source. Right? You can you can just go download it and check out the uh, sample code. And it's literally just add four lines to your TensorFlow script and you're good to go. Wow. Um, and hearing you describe it, it, it goes higher up in ripping out the guts than I even thought. Like I thought it was just like using kind of MPI as like a low, low level message passing thing, but it's also kind of changing the way gradients are distributed uh, across the system. Yeah, um, it's, it touches various layers there. Yeah. So Alex has been able to use it to, uh, let me see, I think there was some model that took maybe like 10 days to train and on our cluster, with I don't remember the details, but in some real practical application, he was able to train this model in seven hours instead. And Buster so, of how many nodes? Uh, I I don't know how many he used in this particular thing, but we've trained stuff up to maybe 128 GPUs. That's right. Now that I mentioned that, I, I remember the the graph that was in the blog post, and you get pretty darn close to ideal uh, multipliers close, yeah. on the scale. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it's. A, a very large speed up for uh, really big applications. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can imagine if you take 10 days to train your model and then suddenly you can train a model in seven hours, right. it changes your whole workflow. It changes oh, yeah. like what your job is. Right. And so uh, that team's productivity has been changed dramatically. And there's not that many use cases that absolutely need like so much data. Mm -hmm. So we're still trying to figure out if there's 
ways that it can be useful to speed up like smaller work, uh, smaller use cases as mm -hmm. well. Um, but it's always something good to have because, you know, people aren't going to begin training on less data. People are always adding more data. Right. And so right. that's what's happening to our use cases. And is this an example of something that um, get, would get integrated into uh, the Michelangelo platform or? Yeah, this is, is part separate, of the Michelangelo part platform. Of the platform. Yeah. And so uh, it wasn't mentioned in our Michelangelo blog post, but we're working on uh, kind of like a separate development model exploration, uh, deep learning specific IDE kind okay. of, or ID is the wrong word, uh, like the way, a way a framework or yeah, something. Yeah, kind of like a framework for people to easily run containers and TensorFlow and iterate on TensorFlow models and okay. get a bunch of uh, machines that they can, like GPU machines, so they can run these big distributed jobs. Okay. And then have ultimately have those models appear in Michelangelo so they can push them to production and evaluate mm. them and stuff like that. And uh, that's so that's how Horovod fits into Michelangelo mm -hmm. and um, I think we're just going to see a, t a tighter and tighter integration in mm. the future so and now Horovod <clears throat> is open source Michelangelo is not Michelangelo is, is not uh, I'm still trying to prioritize that in our roadmap <laughs> it's a lot of work to open source something so don't blame me <laughs> a lot of people have uh, gotten a lot of emails like hey so I couldn't find Michelangelo on GitHub, yeah, and I was like, oh. Nice medium post, yeah, where's, yeah, the, where's the code? Sorry, guys. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I hope to be able to open source it at some time. Uh, it's just not something we're working on right now. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's I think, um, as people deploy, you know, as people kind of productionalize machine learning more and more, like, they run into this. They have to run into this. And at every place, like, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve with Michelangelo, preventing... Uh, data scientists and engineers at Uber from building this over and over again. We're doing this like on the scale of the industry. And, you know, there are like a handful of proprietary, you know, kind of all-in-one platforms that kind of solve some of it. Yeah. Um, and I forget the name of the company, but I recently came across a company that uh, is, you know, their focus is trying to solve the kind of model lifecycle and production thing. But, um you know, I think ultimately, you know, it's infrastructure, right? And infrastructure wants to be open source. Yeah. Right. Totally. So I, you guys I should open that. source it. I know. I, I think it would be cool if we did. <laughs> What's up I with think, that? Uh, <laughs> I'll bring that feedback back. I know I'm arguing for it too. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think it'd be cool if we did. And uh, I would definitely love to see uh, like an industry wide adoption of Michelangelo. Uh, I feel like we have a lot of high priority stuff we got to add to it yeah. internally. Uh, but there's definitely, uh, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to open sourcing stuff. And, right. uh, and I mean, that's why, I think that's why Google open sourced TensorFlow from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, they worked on it a lot internally, but then when it was good enough, they open sourced it. And mm -hmm. uh, as far as I understand is because they didn't want to have the same thing happen to them as what happened with MapReduce, where the MapReduce, where they didn't open source it at first, and then it took, a, and then there was a, a big deviation from the open source stuff than what happened mm -hmm. when they well, got someone else like, open sourced it. Yeah. And they were kind of left out. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. So, yeah. There's awesome. a lot of benefits. We'd love to do it sometime. Right. Well, Mike, uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us and share a little bit about what, uh, what you and Uber are up to in the, the realm of ML platforms. Awesome. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks a lot. Right. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. 
For more information on Mike or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 115. Definitely remember to vote on your favorite My AI video at twimlai.com slash my AI. And of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.